I invite you to turn with me to the book of James, chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, you can take a look under your seat or the seat in front of you or a seat around you, and somewhere close at hand you will find one. And a turn with us all as we open God's Word to the book of James, chapter 5. We will get to James in just a moment. Uh, I want to begin by uh, reading an excerpt from a book by Don Carson. Don Carson is a New Testament scholar, a, a very gifted man of God. And in the excerpt I'm going to read, Don Carson describes two very different days. Did you catch that? Two very different days. There's a purpose to reading this, and I trust the purpose will become evident by the time I'm finished. Please determine, it's a little lengthy, so please determine right now to listen, to uh, give Don Carson your full attention as I share with you what he has to say concerning these two very different days. Do you ever have a day that runs something like this? You get up in the morning. It's drizzly and hot, and the air conditioner is broken. You reach for a clean, fresh pair of socks, and you can't find two that match. You stub your toe on that nail sticking out of the wall that you knew you should have fixed about three years ago. You cut yourself while you, while you are shaving. You stumble down to breakfast, and that day your wife is going out for a special meeting with her friends and has done nothing. You go out to the car, put your key in the ignition, and it will not start. You knew that you should have had the battery checked, and it is deader than a dodo. You get to work late, and people are saying rude things about you. Then your boss says, have you finished that report yet? You are staying late tonight if you haven't. The whole day unfolds in one endless set of mini irritants. Anybody empathizing? I'm sure most of us can relate to this particular day. He goes on. You have an opportunity to speak to some non-Christian friends, a neighbor, someone over the back fence, someone at the gas station, and you are already in such a sour frame that when they ask some dumb question about religion, you answer with a kind of curtness and condescending wit that leaves them shriveled up in a pile of embarrassment. You feel guilty, but you've done it now. Eventually, you return home and your wife has cooked this disgusting stew that your children like and that you detest. You cannot be civil with her and she cannot be civil with you. The kids that night are really not behaving particularly well. Your wife wants you to do jobs and you want to watch football. Finally, it's time for bed at the end of this long day and your prayer, now catch this, your prayer runs something like this, dear God. This has been a rotten day. I'm not very proud of myself. I'm frankly ashamed, but I really don't have anything to say. I'm sorry I've not done better. Forgive me my sin. Bless everybody in the world. Your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you ever had a day like this? Day number two. You get up in the morning. The air is refreshingly cool, like this morning. The sun is shining. The windows are open. The fresh air is wafting through the screen. And you hear the birds singing. You smell something delightful. Bacon. I can't believe it. 
I wonder what the celebration is. You get up and reach for clean socks and feel full of energy. You're whistling as you wash in the bathroom and then have a wonderful quiet time with your spouse. You eat a hearty breakfast and then go out to your car, put the key in the ignition and vroom. The car starts right up and takes off. You get to work early. Everybody commends your industriousness and intelligence in the way you discharge your duties. Your boss says, wonderful to see you today. Did I tell you that you're going to get a raise? You did such a great job on that contract. Now you come across that same person at the gas station. And wonder of wonders, the poor brute actually asks another question. This time, however, you respond with wisdom, tact, gentleness, understanding, courtesy, insight, and kindness. Lo and behold, he promises to come to church with you this coming Sunday. Then you arrive home and there's a joyous family dinner. The kids are behaving and you have intimate conversation with your wife while the two of you clean up in the kitchen. Finally, at the end of that day, you get down to pray. And your prayer goes something like this. Do not miss it, please. Eternal and matchless God, we bow in your glorious presence with brokenness and gratitude. We bless you that in your infinite mercies and great grace you have poured favor upon us. We are not worthy of the least of your mercies. And now you go on and on and on in flowery theological language. You thank God for all the things in the day, and then you pray for missionaries and their children and first cousins twice removed. Then you start praying for everyone you can think of in your church, and then you meditate on all the names of Christ that you can think of in Scripture. An hour goes by, and you go to bed and instantly fall asleep. Now, D.A. Carson asks this question. On which of these two occasions... Have you fallen into the dreadful trap of paganism? Ouch. Ouch. I wish he had not said that. On which of these two occasions have you fallen into the dreadful trap of paganism? God help us. The sad reality is that both approaches to God are abominations. They are abominations. How dare we approach the mercy seat of God on the basis of what kind of day we had as if that were the basis for our entrance into the presence of the sovereign and holy God. This is works theology. It has nothing to do with the grace and the exclusive sufficiency of Christ. Absolutely nothing. It was lengthy, wasn't it? But I pray the point was well made. When we became Christians, that is, when we saw our sin in the sight of a holy God, and when we turned to God and came to Him through the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus became the one mediator between God and us. And the only reason we came to God was because of Christ. Guess what, my friend? Nothing changes from that moment. The only reason we ever come to God is because of Christ. And prayer, this is what I, this is what I want us to get before we turn our eye to the book of James. Prayer is a privilege. 
Prayer is a privilege that the Lord Jesus purchased for his people. It is one of the blessings that he bought for us upon Calvary's cross. And my approach to God in prayer has nothing to do with what I've been doing or how I've been feeling, but depends entirely upon the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what a great and awesome privilege that no matter how my day has gone, no matter how I'm feeling about that particular day, no matter where I'm at in my mental thinking or emotional state of being, I have this wondrous access into the presence of God. And that access is not contingent on me. It rests entirely upon the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even though I've had a crummy day, perhaps, I come to God and I pray along with the tax collector, be gracious to me, a sinner. I've had a wonderful day, and I come before God, and I pray, be gracious to me, a sinner. I'm feeling wonderful today. I'm feeling lousy today. It is irrelevant. I come to God, be gracious to me, a sinner. And I have this great assurance that Christ, my mediator, stands there in the gap and I have entrance into the presence of the Almighty as an adopted son. Now, with that lesson firmly in mind, you're turning with me to the book of James, and today we want to consider a few things concerning this privilege of prayer. We're going to focus on verses 12 and 13. Let me read them for you now. James writes, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. The 13th verse is what I want us to give our attention to. Firstly, we need to deal with verse 12. There it is. It's an odd bird. It really is. He begins in that verse, but above all, uh, before all things. Why does he use this phrase? He's trying to grab your attention, right? He's trying to make you sit up, take notice, listen. What I'm about to say is of extreme importance but before all things, but above all. And so it obviously refers to something he's already said, right? Above all this, what I've already said, my brothers do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And so the obvious question we want to wrestle with, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, I want to get into the 13th verse, but the question we have to wrestle with is this, the expression above all refers to what? Above all, what? There are three possibilities. Firstly, James might be saying this. Above all my commands. He gives 59 commandments in this little epistle. 
I don't know how many he's given to this point, probably about 55. He gives 59 total. And so he might very well be saying, look, above all the commands hitherto mentioned, above everything I've already said, I'm now commanding you to do what? Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. And so he might be drawing our attention to the fact that the command I'm about to give is of extreme importance. You are not to take God's name in vain. You're not to swear flippantly and carelessly by the name of God. You need to understand that such an approach to God is idolatrous. Such an approach to God reveals a debased heart. No, you must hold God in high esteem. Hallowed be your name is how we pray. And therefore, if we swear falsely by the name of God or anything by heaven or by earth, and if we we are anything less than truthful in our speech, we disparage the name of God. And so above all, don't do this. It's a possibility. I don't think that's what he's saying. Second possibility is this, that above all, above all the commands I've given concerning the tongue, because he said a lot, hasn't he, about our words? He has said tons about our speech. You can go back. You can trace it from the first chapter into the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. Our speech is not to be hasty. Our speech is not to be nasty. Our speech is not to be uncontrolled, it's not to be slanderous, it's not to be prejudiced, and on and on and on it goes. And so it is quite possible he's now saying, look, in reference to all the commands I've given concerning the tongue, above all, my brothers, do not swear. Here's one more that is really, really important. That might be his point. I'm not sure that's what he's saying. Here's the third possibility. Here we go. Above all. Above all what? The commands he has just given in verses 7 through 11. You see, in verses 7 through 11, he is addressing, he is explaining how Christians are to respond in the face of injustice. Someone has abused you or someone hasn't treated you fairly or, 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 or you've experienced some sort of grave injustice. Someone has wronged you. How are you supposed to Deal with this. Do you remember from last Sunday, those of you who were here? And he gives what? Three commands to obey, three examples to follow, and three truths to embrace. What are the three commands? Number one, verse seven, be patient. Number two, verse eight, be patient, establish your hearts. Number three, do not grumble against one another. I'm convinced that what James is now doing in the 12th verse is this. He's building, but above all. And so I've told you, be patient, establish your hearts, do not grumble, but above all, my brothers, I'm now commanding you what? Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And so he's bringing us, he's making us aware That when it comes to suffering injustice, the great temptation is what? Impatience. The great temptation is frustration, agitation. And so he says, be patient. When we are impatient, what happens? It leads to weariness. And so he says, establish your hearts. When we're weary, what's the result? We begin to sin with our tongue. And we grumble. And so he says, what in verse 9? Do not grumble. And we sin secondly with our tongue. How? Deceitfulness. Flippancy. Carelessness. Verse 12. Above all, my brothers, 
do not swear. When you find yourself in that predicament and you find you're struggling with impatience, that impatience is leading, that burden is leading to spiritual weariness, that spiritual frustration and agitation is causing you to grumble against others. Also understand this, something's going to be misplaced Godward. Oh, and the temptation to misuse God's name, the temptation to fall into deceit, the temptation to be less than honest in your circumstances in order to alleviate them or escape from them. His command is what? Oh, above all, my brothers, don't do it. Do not do it. It builds, it relates back to the sin of grumbling. The two relate back to what it means to establish our hearts. And establishing our hearts relates back to what it means to be patient in the face of injustice. I was about to ask, because I'm in the habit of doing that in adult Sunday school, if there are any questions. I won't ask if there are any questions. We'll just move right on. That's the 12th verse then. I think that fits the flow. And now he comes into verse 13 which is where we want to camp out in the remainder of the time. And he's drawing his epistle to, to a close. And he asks a few questions. He's going to expose us here to the individual who suffers. And then he's going to expose us to the individual who is sick, the individual who sins, and the individual who swerves or wanders or deviates from the truth. And so here's this first individual, and he comes at him, he comes at her, Asking two questions, giving two responses. Here it is, 13th verse. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You now know why the title for this sermon is what? Prayer and praise. Or maybe it's praise and prayer. Prayer and praise, it should be. That's what we have in this verse. Two questions, two answers. Anyone among you suffering? Here's the command. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Here's the command. Let him sing praise. Pastorally, here's what I want to do. I want to address both of these, prayer and praise. And then I want to build the relationship, the connection between the two and drive home James' key point in these verses, in this text. I trust you haven't forgotten the opening, the point made by D.A. Carson, that as Christians, we're speaking of Christians, that having, having turned from our sin to Christ, having turned from the world to God, having, having approached God through faith in the Lord Jesus, believing He is the one who has made atonement for my sin, believing that His sacrifice is sufficient to wash away my sin, believing that God the Father receives, welcomes, and embraces me in His Son. I am to pray. And this is a privilege. This is a blessing. This is a gift that the Lord Jesus has purchased for us. And so, my friend, here we go. Here's the question. Are you suffering? Are you suffering? Physically. Some of you are. I could uh, rhyme off a series of names right now without a moment's hesitation. Are you suffering physically? Pain. Are you suffering emotionally? 
I don't know why. You fill in the cause. It could be relational, a broken relationship, an estranged relationship. It could be an unkind word spoken. It could be, it could be something as serious as abuse. Uh, there, there are a plethora of reasons you can fit in there as to why you might be suffering emotionally. Are you suffering mentally? You're not sure why. All you know is you had to drag yourself out of bed this morning, drag yourself here, or maybe your spouse had to drag you here, and there you sit, and all is not quiet in that brain of yours that are thoughts just running through your mind, things you're thinking of in the past, going over and over and over, and things that preoccupy your mind as you look ahead, and your predicament, perhaps a little self-inflicted, but we won't go there. Your predicament is, can only be described as what? Suffering. And so what does James say? He acknowledges. He acknowledges that among his audience, I acknowledge it right here, right now, Grace Community Church, there are people who are suffering. Here's the command, my friend. I'm speaking to Christians. Let him pray. Let him pray. Now, pastorally, I want to insert three thoughts here. And I pray they will be, I pray they will be well-received, uh, taken to heart, and, and welcomed in the spirit they are intended. Three very important lessons when it comes to this command, praying in the midst of suffering. Number one, I, wa I want us to grasp this. We must pray when we feel least like praying. You have to, friend, brother, sister. We must pray even when we feel least like praying. What does suffering do? Especially suffering over a period of time. Especially suffering over a prolonged period of time. I dare add. Especially suffering for which there is no earthly end in sight. What is the temptation? The temptation is disappointment. The temptation is discouragement. The temptation is disillusionment. Now I'm speaking pastorally. When disappointment sets in, disappointment or just spiritual weariness arising from suffering. What is the temptation? I'm not saying you're there. I am saying you could be there. And I want to make sure I cover all the bases this morning. What happens when spiritual weariness sets in, weariness that arises from suffering, whether it be physical, emotional, relational, whatever, the temptation is this. It is to self-pity. That is the temptation, my friend. When self-pity takes hold, what is the last thing we will ever do? Pray. We will not pray because we don't feel like praying. We have become so inward-looking. We have become so self 
focused. I have become so self-preoccupied that self-pity now has a hold on me. And where there is self-pity, the spirit of prayer is gone. So I want us to understand this. We must pray even when we feel least like praying. And do you want to know your prayer? Do you want me to give you your prayer? I'll give it to you. Straight out of the book of Psalms. The psalmist prays it repeatedly. Quicken me. Quicken me, O Lord, according to your word. The fire's gone out. There are a few coals, embers there, just smoldering. And the prayer is this, O God, by your spirit, through your word, breathe on those embers so that the the fire is ignited. Quicken me, O Lord. Quicken me by your word. And God will hear that prayer, friend. He's not going to turn a deaf ear to that prayer. He's not going to ignore the cry of his children. There is a cry we can make when we find ourselves in those cases of desperation when when that whole entire process has unfolded before our eyes and there we find ourselves. Uh, We can come, we can quote the word of God and we can come before our Father, we can cry out, Abba, Father, quicken me according to your word. Here's the second thing I want us to get, the second lesson. We must pray rather than complain. You have to do it, friend. Pray rather than complain. We have, I have, I'll speak first person singular, I have no shortage of words when I'm suffering. No shortage of words when it comes to complaining when I'm suffering. I have never been at a loss for words when I have found myself in that kind of condition, that kind of circumstance, that kind of state. And yet when it comes to praying, suddenly the words evaporate like a mist before my eyes. Why is that? I think it relates back to the first point I made, that we just don't feel like praying. I think there's also something cognitively going on, and it's this. We're very confused when it comes to what prayer is. Far too many of us, far too many of us have bought into, and it is a persistent idea that will not go away. Far too many of us have bought into the idea That prayer is the means by which I get God to do what I want Him to do. When nothing happens, when I pray for healing, perhaps, when I pray for deliverance from this set of circumstances, when I pray for change, when I pray for this, I pray for that, I pray for something to alter my circumstances, my condition, for God just to take it away, and it doesn't happen, I give up praying. Why? Because I no longer know the point of praying. Because insofar as I'm concerned, prayer only serves one point. That point is to get what I want. To try to make God, convince God to do what, is in my in- what I think is in my self-interest. My friend, that is not prayer. Well, you, <laughs> Carson used the expression, I'll use it again. That's paganism. It ain't prayer. It is paganism. It is superstition. We're not rubbing the lamp hoping a genie pops out and grants us our three wishes. The purpose of prayer is not to align God's will with mine. It is to align my will with God's. That 
is the purpose of prayer. Your will be done, not mine. Oh, the need to pray in the midst of suffering. Far often we think prayer is a way to change our circumstances. It is not. It is the means the Spirit of God uses to change our hearts. That's the purpose of prayer. Third thing I want us to get is this. We must pray. Oh, are you suffering? Pray. Please pray. Pray in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? It means to pray according to God's word. Staying confined within the parameters of James' epistle. What does it mean to pray according to God's word? Here are four things you must, I must pray for in the midst of suffering. The first, you know what it is, don't you? Those of you who've been here a long time now, you know what it is. Back in chapter 1, what was it? Wisdom. Pray for wisdom. What is this wisdom? Oh, turn there. It's worth turning there. Please impress this upon your mind, upon your heart. What is this wisdom we're praying for? Chapter 3, verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I'm suffering. Oh, pray for wisdom. God will answer this prayer. Pray for these things that James lists here in chapter 3, verse 17. And the Spirit of God will work these things in us, in and through our suffering. Secondly, we can pray for patience, can't we? There's the command in chapter 5, verse 7. You get it again in chapter 5, verse 8. You have it again in the example of Job, this need for steadfastness. This need for perseverance, this persevering patience that is so pleasing in the sight of God. Oh God, give me that kind of patience. Thirdly, we must pray for strength to resist sin when you are suffering. When I'm in the midst of suffering, we are what? Targets. Uh, We become, in many ways and on many levels, very vulnerable, particularly susceptible to temptation. Oh, suffering will tempt us to doubt God. It will tempt us to murmur, grumble, and complain. It will tempt us to become bitter. Oh, pray. Pray for divine strength, sustaining strength to resist sin. And fourthly, pray. Pray for God to be glorified in you. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray those words, we are, in essence, asking God to be glorified in us through the fulfillment of his will, his plans and purposes and intentions for us. We ask him to glorify himself in us by increasing our faith, hope, and love in the midst of suffering. We ask him to glorify himself in us by purging out some sin in us through that suffering, using it. We ask God to be glorified in us by making us more usable, more usable in his service. And we ask God to glorify himself in us by through suffering making us more 
compassionate, more compassionate. Oh, we must pray when we feel least like praying. We must pray rather than complain. And we must pray in the Holy Spirit. I've penned it here, that little song. I trust many of us know it. What a friend we have in Jesus, right? Do you remember that one, some of you? What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. There you have it. Are you suffering? Some of you are. Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Sing praise. It's actually the word we get psalms from. Sing psalms. Sing praises to God. Now, we are prone to make a huge mistake here. And so let me cut it off right at the beginning. Prone to a huge mistake. Is anyone among you suffering? Okay, so what James has in view here is the person who, who, who's really in the midst of dire straits. He has the person here who's in the grip of sorrow, in the grip of pain, in the grip of abandonment, estrangement, physical illness, near death, persecution. This is just a person, just a mountain of problems in his life. Is anyone cheerful? Well, here's someone who's out there on the placid lake. In the boat, right? The wee boat. And the sail is up, the gentle breeze, and it is all, life is good. Hallelujah. Let that person praise. That is not what James is saying. We completely miss that little boat if we misunderstand James' point here. This is not a circumstantial cheerfulness. Having a great day. Therefore, I'm cheerful and I'm going to praise God. This is not a cheerfulness fixed to, related to, resting upon my circumstances in life. What does he say way back in the first chapter, verses 2 and 3? Count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. This is a joy, this is a cheerfulness that transcends life's circumstances, and that is not rooted in changing circumstances, but in an unchanging God. Meaning what? This is a cheerfulness that can coexist with suffering. There's nothing antithetical here, folks, because it is a joy that is not related to what we're going through, passing through. It is a joy that arises out of our relationship with God. Oh, how important this is. The psalmist cries, I say to the Lord, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And I have no good apart from you. Really? You are my Lord. And I have no good. Apart from you. What is the psalmist making known? That whatever is transpiring in life, a good or bad, there is this one unwavering, unchanging constant. It is that God is 
the greatest good. And this God is His. You've got it. I think you've got it back in chapter 1 of James. Uh, What does James say? Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow. And so the realization, oh, the awakening realization that the creator of the heavens and earth, the one who set the stars in place, the one who created mankind from the dust of the earth, the one who rules and reigns providentially over the entire created order, the one whose great plan for the revelation of his eternal glory culminates in the death, burial, resurrection, soon return of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This God is mine. This God who is the greatest good in his essence. This God who has revealed and manifested his goodness from beginning to end. And this God who in the clearest fashion, manner possible, has declared his superabounding goodness upon Calvary's cross, where he has made provision for me, a sinner. This God is mine, and I am his. Oh, what do we read? His banner over me is love. Oh, and whatever is going through the whirlwind of life, Whatever we are passing through, here is a cheerfulness that remains untouched. And what is James' command? Let him sing praise. Oh, praise the Lord. There is none like you, says the psalmist. There is none like you among the gods. Oh, Lord, nor are there any works like yours. There is none like you among the gods. There is none like you in heaven above or on earth below. None like you, incomparable in being. And there is none like you in your mighty works. And as I reflect on who you are, and as I consider, as I ponder your works, the work of redemption eclipsing them all, Oh, I see your power. I certainly do. And, and it, it provokes a fear and, and faith. I see your wisdom. Yes, I do. And it gives me such, such hope and such confidence. But in it all, I behold your love. And I love you because you first loved me. And from that condition flows this singing of praise. From that condition flows this thanksgiving. Here's the point. We're bringing it to a head now. And pastorally, you might be right here with me. And you might be walking with me every step of the way through your own conditions. Here we come to the climax, the main point. Bring it all together. We are to live. I believe this is James' point. We are to live all of life in communion with God. We are to live all of life in communion with God. And that communion is marked by prayer and praise. We're to live the good 
and the bad in communion with God. We are to live the joyful and the sorrowful in communion with God. We are to live the pleasurable and the painful in communion with God. Let me get very earthly. Let me get very real. Here, here, here's a prayer. Lord, I never thought I'd be burying my own child. I never thought that. Never anticipated that. Never saw it coming that I'd be burying my own child. Lord, I never thought that I would be unemployed without any prospects at my age. Lord, I never, ever conceived that I would be in a miserable marriage. Lord, I never thought that I would be weeping over children who have wandered from the faith. Lord, I never thought that I would be this sick, this frail, this lonely. Lord, I never, ever thought I would suffer like this. I am turning to you, prayer and praise. I am turning to you for sustaining and strengthening and sanctifying grace. I remember that every good and perfect gift descends from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. I praise you for your matchless grace and boundless mercy. I praise you for forgiving me my multitude of sins. I praise you for adopting me, welcoming me into your family. I praise you for all the spiritual blessings that I possess in Christ Jesus. I praise you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I praise you for the gift of your word. I praise you for the coming day when you will wipe away every tear. Do you see what I have done there? As I praise God, what do I discover? As I praise God out of my cheerfulness, cheerfulness arising from who I am in Christ Jesus, what do I discover? I discover the answer to my prayer that has arisen out of my suffering. Do you see the connection between the two? Let me repeat it. That as I find myself praising God, as I find myself thanking God, delighting in God, coming alongside the psalmist and expressing all those great exclamations as to who God is in his glory, what do I discover? As that arises out of my position in Christ and this reality that God is mine, I find the answer to my prayer that arises out of my suffering. Because as I delight myself in the Father of lights, as I praise Him, He in turn strengthens me. He in turn sustains me in answer to my prayer in the midst of suffering. Is that where you find yourself this morning? It might very well be. You're here and you are racked with suffering. It's worse than that. It has been going on for some time now. It's worse than that. There will be no termination point. It is going to go on and on. Well, here is the word of God for you, my friend. Is anyone among you suffering? 
let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. The hymn writer pens, through all the changing scenes of life, in trouble and in joy, the praises of my God shall yet my heart and tongue employ. Our Father, we do pray that is true of us this day. We acknowledge much easier said than practiced. And so pray that you would be merciful to each one here as they wrestle with circumstances beyond their control, as they deal with issues that can only be described as suffering. That by your Spirit you would work, perform a work in them, be merciful and be compassionate, bringing them to that place of renewed joy whereby they see with fresh eyes, they behold with renewed eyes what it is to be loved of you in the Lord Jesus Christ, what it is to be a child of God, what it is to know sins forgiven in the hope of eternal life. Our Father, we beg this of you again for the furtherance of your kingdom, and we ask it in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.